I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. He's a counselor, meditation teacher, couples counselor, mediator, and author of Beyond Perception, Conscious Communication, and Conscious Communication for Couples. Two weeks ago, we discussed an article you wrote which dove into the innate tendency of the ego to be biased and racist. So innately, the ego is just biased by nature, which gives it a tendency towards racism when it encounters other types of people, other races. So any kind of other that the ego encounters, we talked about how it innately responds to it as a potential threat. That's right. And this week we're going to talk about another article you wrote, or a, a blog you wrote, talking about the victim-oppressor paradigm, which is another creation of the ego. Yes, well summarized. So I'm glad to be here talking about this again. I want to say a few words about our last conversation to just kind of clarify and make a segue to this sort of new topic, which is very related. And that is just to really accentuate what you just summarized, that it's easy to call out racism in somebody else, and that's 
happening a lot these days, and, and there may be some benefit from it. I'm not suggesting that it's something wrong, but I am suggesting it's easy, and it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It can, in fact, set us up, you know, for more struggle. You know, we can, we can run around calling each other racist, and it doesn't solve anything, necessarily. In fact, it may put people more on the defensive and make it less likely that people are going to recognize their own prejudice. So my take is let's start with noticing how the roots of racism are, are within our programmed mind. You know, that's the ego that you were talking about. And simply to summarize the last talk we had in saying that the programming of our mind makes us suspicious of the other, any other, anybody that appears different shows up for most of us, if you're honest with yourself, in your private mind as suspicious, as someone that might be threatening. There's a kind of an automatic response, and that's what I was talking about in our last conversation is that leads to prejudice. We prejudge. And I'm just simply suggesting that if we're serious about getting to the roots of racism, and I think we should be, I think it's a good thing to eradicate, to really uproot that we have to look for the roots, I think, in our own conditioned mind and see that my fear of difference, my fear of somebody who's different than me, is where I need to begin to heal that. And so that's really just a new, more succinct summary of what we talked about last time. And this time, what I want to focus on, this blog article I wrote, brings into play our current president, President Trump, and I think for ease of summarizing, we could say maybe the, the rise or the prominence of white supremacy. I think that tied to the discussion we had on racism, or connected to it certainly, is this rise in the notion of white supremacy. And my take on this is that what we're seeing in the nation electing President Trump and in the years that Trump has been president what we're noticing, and to a lot of us was quite surprising, was the depth of the feeling of white supremacy, that there's a lot more people in the U.S., apparently, that feel that way than I was certainly aware of. And what I am seeing is that the Trump administration and his, his leadership, if we could call it that, is bringing that to the fore. So it's really bringing to the surface what's been there apparently underneath the surface kind of hidden because it wasn't socially acceptable maybe perhaps this idea of white supremacy and so that's what i want to look at today is what's going on there because i think that it's easy to call someone racist and use that as a negative judgment it's also easy to call someone a white supremacist and use that as a negative judgment and i don't think we get very far by approaching it that way. And what I've been trying to do myself in these last years since President Trump has been in power is try to understand that movement, try to understand what's fueling the white supremacy movement. And that's the basis of this article that I wrote. Do you want me to just elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. And I, I just want to say I'm really glad that we're focusing on this particular issue because I think it's it's become a real hot front burner issue across the country for a lot of people. And, and a lot of people are very upset about this and dug in to their opposing positions on this issue. Yeah, yeah, which is 
understandable. Yeah, We've, I feel it a lot myself. Sure, yeah. sure. And I have friends who are just livid, and understandably so, that we're seeing this. Again, I don't necessarily think it's a rise in white supremacy, but a permission to be public about it. And I think it's pretty obvious to me that that's one of the consequences of the Trump presidency is that people that are aligning with the cause of white supremacy are now feeling more permission to be public about it. And while that might be very upsetting and understandably so, frightening, threatening, it's, I think, in the end, it's a really good thing because in order to clear something, in order to heal it, in order to resolve it, it has to be exposed. If it's hidden in people's private lives only, there's very little chance of resolving it. So now it's coming out in the open, and I think it behooves a lot of us that really are concerned about this to put some effort into suspending our judgment and our animosity toward white supremacists and putting some effort into trying to understand what are they thinking, what's going on for them, what are their needs. So the basis of this article I wrote is that, astonishingly to a lot of us, what I began to realize, and I've heard other teachers and authors focus on this, and it's been very helpful to me to think of it in these terms, President Trump's supporters see themselves as victims of, you could say, racial prejudice. And they see the decline, perhaps, of the superiority, the power that white men in particular have held for generations, maybe, you know, centuries. And as the society that we live in becomes more egalitarian, more democratic, you could say, recognizes the individual rights and responsibilities of everyone, women, people of color, immigrants, as that occurs, it's inevitable, and if you think of it, it makes sense, that the white, former white majority, I think we could say, uh, certainly class. white males in our country and, and perhaps in Western civilization that are used to having the power are feeling threatened. Mm. So without putting judgments on a good or bad or right or wrong, let's just acknowledge that, that there's a power shift happening as we move into more and more democracy, more equality, and that white men who have had that power historically for centuries would naturally feel threatened by that. So when I looked at it from that point of view, and then I began to realize that when you listen to President Trump and when you see how he's constantly activating his base, as we describe it in the media, what you'll notice is that he's portraying himself and other white people as victims. And he's suggesting that we have to fight, we white people have to fight for our rights, for our power, to get our power back. The whole concept of make America great again, I'm understanding more clearly now, really means to go back to an era where white men had more power and more control. And as white male citizens are feeling that move out of their hands, they're reacting. They're trying to assert their power again. And from a very human point of view, that's understandable. I can see, I can begin to understand how they feel threatened and how Black Lives Matter movement, for example, could be seen as a direct threat 
to them and how their reaction would be to assert their authority and power to try to regain what they think was lost. And my point in this is really to help us understand, you could say, the other side. Without an understanding of the premise and the feelings and needs of the other side, there's no hope of reconciliation. There's no hope of trying to resolve the situation. And my feeling is that recognizing that even the most privileged people, you know, so from a purely logical point of view, it doesn't make sense that privileged white people would be crying victim. But that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And we can ignore it or we can look at it in disbelief, but I think until we understand the roots of it, nothing's going to change. And the point of my article is that the roots of that paradigm are again embedded in the conditioning, the programming of our mind, it comes with the ego, that we all see ourselves as a victim. And it doesn't matter how privileged, how wealthy, or how powerful we are, every human sees someone as having power over them and sets themselves up to fight against that. And what we're seeing, and you could say the Trump movement, is, to some people's astonishment, white people seeing themselves as a victim of the societal changes that have given other people equal power, you could say, or are trying to give other people equal power, and they're pushing back. They're, they're fighting for what they perceive as their rights and their privilege. What I really want to focus on in writing this is how that paradigm, that dynamic is baked into us. And if we don't resolve that inside of ourselves individually, if we don't see it as a pattern, the victim-oppressor pattern, we just keep repeating it. And fighting against it or putting people down for claiming it doesn't help us. What does help us, I think, is digging a little deeper into our own private mind and noticing that each one of us has that sense of being a victim. No matter how privileged we are, no matter how much power we hold, we each see ourselves as a victim. And that is a problem because it's going to lead to conflict. It's going to lead to us pushing back against whatever we think is victimizing us. And that process, what I'm suggesting in this article is that process perpetuates itself. It doesn't end. We each see ourselves as victimized by the other. And if Donald Trump and his followers can see themselves as victimized, I think anybody can see themselves as victimized. And that's what I'm really trying to get people to look at here. Mm -hmm. And the one word that you haven't used but has been implied in all this is fear and the role that fear plays in this because fear is a very deep and powerful primal emotion and motivator of the kind of behavior and dynamic that you are talking about. Yes, and it's really good to bring that up because obviously if you watch Trump, that's what he uses. He plays on people's fear because, as you're suggesting, it really gets people going. It gets the adrenaline flowing and it gets people energized. And the fear that's baked into us, we each have it as part of our fragile ego structure <laughs> that we, you know, we have to fight for our survival. The fear is that if we don't fight tooth and nail for our own individual survival, we're going to be 
overwhelmed. We're going to be put down. We're going to be oppressed. Someone else is going to take get the upper hand, and we're going to lose. And we might lose everything. We might lose our life. So there's this urgency that's conditioned into our ego to fight for our own survival. And what's really interesting to me to notice is that it occurs with everyone. It doesn't matter how much someone has the upper hand. It doesn't matter how much power or wealth or military might or, you know, none of that matters. The fear of being put down, you know, extinguished, the fear of being killed is there in all of us. And we're acting out of that fear, and it's a pretty irrational fear. It doesn't... My point is that we think if we have more money, if we have more wealth, if we have more power, or if we have more military might, that we won't have to be afraid anymore. And it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I'm reminded of that notion that the more money that somebody has, the more power, the more possessions, the more privilege that somebody has, the more fear they have of losing it, because there's so much more that they can lose. And it also reminds me of that wonderful song from Janis Joplin, you know, freedom is, is having nothing left to lose. Yeah. So the more you have, the more potential for fear. That's right. And I think it really behooves us to look honestly at that dynamic and that in some way, I would argue, most of us are caught up in the false belief that if we just have enough money, if we just have enough power, social power, political power, military power, we have enough guns maybe, that we won't have to be afraid. And the truth is it doesn't play out that way. And I think we could really help ourselves as individuals by noticing that, that no matter how much I stockpile, the fear doesn't go away. And as you're suggesting, it actually seems to increase. And I would argue that's simply because we're not dealing with the fear. We're we're dealing with the symptoms of the fear, and we're trying to overwhelm the fear by, you know, patting ourselves and, and in trying to ensure our own survival, and it doesn't change the fear. And if we don't address the fear directly, it's going to grow. It's going to continue to grow. And so the article I wrote starts out by suggesting that it looks like it's Trump and his zealous supporters who are the villains out there, you know, dominating the world, trying to oppress innocent people. And it sure looks that way. What's not so easy to see is that they're terrified. They're afraid. They're afraid of losing their privilege. And if you are honest, I think we all have to admit that we're afraid of that, that we've used some sort of, we've all tried to get an edge on life and on other people so that we have a little more, so that we have a little more comfort, a little more padding, a little more insurance against disaster. And that tendency that we all have can and does lead to ultimately a system of thought like white supremacy. White supremacy is simply, you know, the idea that we could lock down that privilege, <laughs> we could lock down that power, and our ancestors have done it before and we could do it again, and somehow those of us that think that way think this would ensure our safety and the thing to look at is that it never does, that there's no amount of privilege, there's no amount of superiority or supremacy that finally dispels the fear that you're talking about. The fear is there, and unless we deal with it directly, it's going to color everything that we do. And when you say directly, you mean getting to the root of the fear. 
Yeah, yes. I'm talking about dealing with the fear as fear and on a very primal and simple way to notice it in your body. So to make this really practical, I think one thing that we can each do to address this global concern, what I call the rise of white supremacy or the revealing of, of white supremacy, one thing we can all do to address that is to uproot the fear that we harbor inside our own heart, inside our own mind. And the way to do that is to notice it, to, to notice every time I feel anxious, every time I feel afraid. This gets back to our discussion last time about racism, that I think the way to uproot racism or prejudice is for each one of us, it's an individual act of self-growth, you know, personal growth, where we notice our own fear and we relax it, which is really all you can do. You can't defend yourself against your fear. So you're you talking, try, but what, I'm, what so you're, I'm saying is you just end up building walls. So you're talking about when we have a, a knee-jerk reaction to something that, that feels threatening or unfair or... Exactly. Uh-huh. So when we have that knee-jerk reaction, That's right. it's, it's not easy to remember to look into the root of it or to just slow down and just allow ourselves to feel the raw emotion because we, we tend to get swept away by it. That's exactly right. So this might be a good time to suggest there's some, there's some preparation that we can do that each one of us individually can do for those moments when we, as you suggest, we have a knee-jerk reaction, something appears to threaten us, and we go, into, we go into survival mode, right? We go into fight or flight mode. And what I'm suggesting is that we each individually have to, have to unplug from that, unhook from that survival instinct in order to approach things differently, more sanely, with more compassion, more awareness and presence and intelligence and if we don't prepare for it ahead of time i think it will sweep us away every time that the fear is so strong when it kicks in it overwhelms us and that's a really good time to make a case for a practice of self-awareness such as meditation so i use and teach a very simple practice of insight meditation which is paying attention to the body breathing sitting quietly or walking Slowly and just noticing the body movement, the body breathing, as a way of becoming aware of the tension in my body, the effect of emotions in my body, and my thoughts. And as I do that practice, and I've been doing that now for over 40 years, it accumulates, and you gradually are more able to release a thought before it fully catches you and you get absorbed in it. So, for example, if I notice that I'm afraid of something, I can often, not always, but I can often recognize that as tightness in my body. My fists will tighten up or my jaw will tighten up or my heart will start racing. And that, to me now, because I've been practicing meditation, is a signal, oh, I'm scared, which sounds so obvious and elementary, but we skip that part. We don't even notice that we're afraid and we jump right into our automatic response, which is usually defensive or even aggressive. So the first thing is just notice the tension in your body, the discomfort, and recognize it as fear, and then see what happens if you just relax the body, breathe, and soften for just a minute, and notice how you can sort of 
dissipate the fear. That doesn't mean that you ignore whatever it is that's triggering you. You still pay attention to the trigger because there might be a an actual threat. There might be somebody trying to hurt you or there might be a, a dangerous situation that you're facing that's, that the fear is signaling. But very often, our fear reaction comes up in response to just a story in our mind. We tell us, we see somebody that we think might be threatening to us, we make up a story in our mind, and the fear response makes it feel as real as if that person was actually attacking us. And that's one of the roots of racism, isn't it? Is that we, we see a person of a different race, and we get scared. And then we make a story, that person might hurt me, and then we get and build up a defensive response, and that's what a lot of us would call racism. We make a prejudgment about a person based on a story we have in our head. And I'm suggesting that that's a personal responsibility that we each have to unhook from those stories. And to do that, we each need a certain degree of self-awareness that could come from a practice of meditation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've experienced that myself. And we've talked about this years ago as well, that an accumulated practice, you know, experience of, of practicing meditation builds a kind of foundation from which we can observe the things that arise and be actually present as they're arising so that we have this sensation of spaciousness both in space and time that allows us to question what's arising before we go into automatically responding to it. Exactly. I think it's really helpful now that we're into this subject of meditation. Some things I think need to be clarified that it's not about believing that nothing can harm you. It's not a magical thought system. It's not a affirmation, you know, nothing can harm me, nothing can harm me, nothing can harm me. It's not that. It's being intelligent, being present and aware and using your intelligence to look directly at what's happening and assess, is this really a threat? And if you start doing that, you'll notice that most of the time, most of the time when you feel scared, there isn't a threat. Your mind has made up a story. There's a great story that illustrates this that one of my teachers has used, and that is, and a lot of Vermonters can maybe relate to this. And So I'll paint the picture that you're out walking on your peaceful country road, up here in Vermont, and it's dusk, and you're having a nice little summer stroll, and you look ahead of you on the road, and you see a big snake just laying across the road. And it's kind of fuzzy. You're not sure what kind of snake it is, but you see it there. And immediately, I think most of us would have a fear reaction, and we would start to think about how we're going to handle this event. You know, our heart might start racing, our mind would certainly start spinning like, uh-oh, there's a snake, what am I going to do? This might hurt me. And we immediately make up a story in our mind that this is a threat and we have to protect ourselves from it. And the effect would be racing heart, your body tense, you're ready to run or you're ready to maybe attack the snake. And so that's an immediate response based on the perception that there's a snake in the road ahead of me. The story goes on that after a moment, you calm down a little bit, and you notice that the snake isn't moving, so you realize, maybe I'll go take a closer look, and you start walking toward it cautiously. Your heart's still racing. You're still ready to run or attack the snake. And as you get closer, 
you suddenly see that it's not a snake, but it's a piece of rope, big, fat piece of rope somebody dropped in the middle of the road. As soon as you see that it's a rope, you kind of laugh, you sort of shake off the fear, and it's gone. There's no adrenaline rush, there's no heart beating fast, your body relaxes, and the threat's over. And what that's illustrating is how quickly our mind makes up a story that this is going to hurt me, this is a threat, and I have to defend myself from it, before we actually investigate, before we actually use our 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 senses and our presence and our wisdom and our awareness to explore, is this a threat? Is this something that can hurt me? In the case of the snake rope story, it wasn't a threat. But we wouldn't know that until we investigated more closely and used our awareness to check it out. And the point of the story is that when you have a fear response, wisdom would be to relax a moment and really notice what's happening to see if there's some imminent danger. And if there is, of course, protect yourself, take precaution, get out of there or fight for your life or whatever needs to happen. But if there isn't an imminent danger, that would be a good thing to know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Neurologically, they call that the sympathetic nervous system hijacking our system. That's right. And meditation practice strengthens our parasympathetic nervous system, which we need a balance between the parasympathetic and and sympathetic nervous system so that we don't get hijacked. Because there's another metaphor where somebody is standing at, at the edge of a cliff and there could be a ghost behind you. And this is based on the premise that ghosts can't harm us, but they can scare us. <laughs> mm. And if we're scared, we could, out of you know knee-jerk response, we could jump off the cliff and die. <laughs> And also in the martial arts tradition, they talk about how in combat, you have to train yourself to not be hijacked by your sympathetic nervous system. That's right. Because they say that as soon as you experience fear, you've lost. Yeah. So even though you have a mortal threat in your face, you cannot allow yourself to get hijacked by fear. You have to stay fully present and not exactly relaxed, but you cannot allow yourself to go into sympathetic response because one of the things that happens when the sympathetic nervous system takes over is that it constricts and contracts our perception. It physiologically narrows our perception, which can inhibit our ability to respond effectively to the overall situation that we're dealing with. Yeah. In conflict resolution theory, we talk about is that in the fight or fight response, your blood flow goes to your extremities, your arms and your legs. You're ready to run or you're ready to fight, and it reduces the blood flow to the brain. So your capacity for making good judgment is impaired. And I think that's the point in martial arts. When fear is present, you're not going to make as good judgments. And the actual effect of that is that you won't be able to defend yourself as well. So whereas a lot of people would argue, well, if I don't have the fear response, you know, I'm just, I'm just a sitting duck, I'm just defenseless. And in fact, the opposite's true. 
that with the fear response, you're inhibiting your capacity to make intelligent choices. So that's the basis of the concept of meditation, is working toward neutralizing the fear response so that you can stay present. And the idea is you can make better choices. If there is a threat, if that rope turned out to be a snake in the road, you're, you're much better positioned to get out of its way or defend yourself from it than if you're not spinning stories in your mind and locked into fear. And so either way, it's good to be calm. It's good to remain calm, and that's what meditation helps us do. I do want to bring up, because we're so deep into meditation now, a subject that you and I hold dear, Tonio, is that the gist of this article I wrote and the, and the one we talked about last time is trying to make that bridge between the political and the spiritual, if you will. The, you know, people like myself that have devoted a good part of my life to spiritual practice and meditation, trying to translate this into how does that translate into these political movements? Some people would say the need for action. So I think it's easy to make a divide between people who believe in political action and people who believe in spiritual growth, and sometimes they don't mix. And what I'm trying to do in these articles and in a lot of my teaching and writing these days is to bring those together. And so one thing I want to just put on the table now, while we have a little time left to go into it, is that the notion that meditation or personal spiritual growth amounts to inaction is just not true. The premise here is that if we act out of fear, is what you and I are just saying, if we react out of fear, what we're essentially doing is perpetuating a system that will just keep perpetuating. And that's the point of this article, is that if we really honestly can see that the rise of white superiority movement is based on the fear, the same fear that you and I have, that we all have the same fear, and we all have the same way of framing it, which is someone else is gaining control over us. What's astonishing to people that you know are watching from the outside, Trump and his followers, is how can people with that much privilege and that much wealth and that much power, how can the President of the United States claim to be a victim? It's astonishing, but it's true. And if you listen to Trump, that's what he's doing all the time, is he's saying we're the victim and we need to fight back. We need to push back against the oppressor. And what it shows me is that we're locked, all of us, in this paradigm that's self-destructive, that we all see each other as the oppressor and ourselves as the victim. And if we play that game, if we just blindly sign on to that way of thinking of things, we're just perpetuating it. And that's where a practice like meditation that gives you a moment to pause and notice the pattern, and choose perhaps not to buy it. That's what's so radical about it, and I would argue is the most active thing you can do. The most active thing you can actually do is change your own human nature, is unhook from your own flight-or-fight response, to question your own mental framework that sees yourself as a victim and someone else as the oppressor, and my argument is that once we each individually unhook from that, we're much more powerful and we can act in the world in a much more powerful way. And in the article, I'm not suggesting that we just step aside and let white supremacists take over. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is that 
we don't fight against white supremacy using the values and the tools of white supremacy, that we have to fight it, if you will. We have to resist it or we have to undo it by stepping out of it completely. And the more of us that step out of that paradigm of victim and oppressor, the less hold it's going to have over all of humanity. Mm -hmm. So let's take it from that more survivalist kind of approach or perspective and take it into the realm of the intellect and concepts of morality and right and wrong and good and evil. Because when people are motivated by those concerns, it shifts from a knee-jerk survival thing to what's considered to be a principled battle of right against wrong or good against evil that we might believe we are morally compelled to fight. Yeah, good good point. So you're saying that at some point the emphasis can shift from just pure survival to standing up for a principle, and we can really dig in our heels <laughs> when it comes to defending our principles. This is right, and I'm fighting... I'm I'm fighting on the side of right against something that's clearly wrong. And I think that's a really strong motivation for a lot of us. And maybe some people see as as a step above or step beyond the pure survival instinct that we're talking about. The point I'm trying to make in this in this writing is that we're all doing that. Everyone's doing that. The Trump administration is doing it. The Trump followers are using that same principle. They see themselves as right, and they see people that are fighting for the rights of people of color as wrong. So it doesn't matter whether we agree or disagree. The thing I want to point to is if we're all using that same setup, it's never going to resolve itself. It's just going to perpetuate conflict endlessly. In conflict resolution, what we say is that if you're fighting to be right, it's a conflict that you can't win. What we focus on in conflict resolution is what are your basic needs? And if you're trying to get your basic needs met, that's something we can work on. But what most of us do is we mistake one of our basic needs for being right. We think that being right makes us happy or makes us powerful or, or meets our needs, and it really doesn't. Being right is just a superficial um, reach that the ego makes. The ego's always trying to be right, and the way the ego frames itself as right is by framing someone else as wrong. So that when we buy into that system of I'm right and you're wrong, which all of us, if we're honest, do that automatically. Your mind is wired to do that. So I'm not suggesting that you you know, can just easily step out of that, but what you can do is notice it. Notice that your mind quickly sets things up as I'm right, you're wrong, and it very easy to make an argument that we're right and the Trump followers are wrong. It's really simple and easy to make that argument. But I would say that doesn't get us anywhere because that's the same argument they're making. And all we do then is we just perpetuate this endless conflict where everybody sees himself as right and everyone sees someone else as wrong. And rather than fight that battle on the terms of morality, I think we, we will get much further if we can understand each other's needs. So what I'm trying to focus on is, and I know this may sound blasphemous to some of the listeners here, but what are the needs of the white supremacists? What are they actually fighting for, other than, you know, to be right? 
and I would argue the same needs as you and I. They're, they feel like their survival threatened. That may not add up to you and I, but in their mind it adds up perfectly. And if you think of it as you know, white supremacists are rising, you could say, because society is becoming more democratic and egalitarian, and they see that as a direct losing of their power, and they see a losing of power as putting themselves in a more vulnerable position, and they see themselves in a vulnerable position as not being safe and not being secure. So their need is safety and security, just as you have a need for safety and security, and I have a need for safety and security. What's different is a strategy we're using, perhaps, to get that need met. But let's not confuse that with trying to win the moral battle and be right. And my take and my suggestion is that fighting a moral battle is an endless fight that doesn't ever reach a conclusion and just generates more conflict, and it doesn't serve us. And I'm, I'm suggesting we set down the moral high ground, we let go of the moral battle, we forget about what appears to be right and wrong in this moment, and we focus instead on what is it you want. And we ask each other, what is it you want? And I think if we were to ask and get an honest answer from a white supremacist, we'd get order, security, safety. I want to go back to the way things were because it felt safer. And, of course, we don't, most of us don't agree with the method, white supremacy as a method, but we can agree with the need that it's trying to meet. Okay, I get it. Your need is safety, security. Now let's can we have a more calm and maybe rational conversation about how can we meet each other's, how can we help each other meet our needs for safety? And perhaps, perhaps we could reach someone in that party, in that school, in that way of thinking, enough to enable them to see that everyone wants safety and security. People of color want safety and security. And so how do we try to have, help everyone meet that need? Yeah. <laughs> how, how do we do that? Because, as you're saying, the people who, who are motivated by privilege and maintaining their privilege, who want to go back to the old way that felt safer and, and more secure for them, you know, that section of society, they usually think of them as conservatives who want to go back to the way things were, yep. when things were, you know, better, when America was great, or, or whatever, yeah. whatever narrative or title they want to give it that's what makes them feel safe but that threatens those who were victims of that system whereas nowadays with these new movements towards equality and greater democracy the me too movement and equal rights for women and for the lgbtq people that threatens those people who feel like their way of their old way of life and privilege will be diminished. They see it as a zero-sum game where what other people gain will be at their cost, that they will lose. And so from that perspective of a zero-sum game, of a win-lose kind of a game, there's no um, good good turnout. There's no... Yeah, where there's where no, do we go from there? Yeah, exactly. So, so how do we deal with that? You talked about, you know, in mediation work, how you deal with that. But when the stakes feel so high, because this is a feeling that we have in our bodies, and 
and you, you talk about the need to become aware of our bodies and aware of the feeling in our bodies. What Eckhart Tolle talked about, referred to as the pain body, and being aware of that and being present to feel into that direct experience. And then, you know, something new can arise out of that. But until we, we engage in that direct experience of what we're feeling in our bodies without jumping to conclusions, without jumping into a uh, fight-or-flight response. And by doing that, all we do is, is continually get hijacked by that vicious cycle that just goes on and on and on and never ends. Yeah, so I'm trying to make this really succinct, that the gist I'm trying to get at here is that to reach whoever can hear, to say... We're caught in a self-perpetuating conflict, and the basis of it is this premise that I'm right and you're wrong. And if we lead with that premise, if we, if we make that our premise, no matter how right we feel, no matter how justified we feel, if we make that our premise, if we try to defeat the wrong and be on the side of right, we're simply feeding this dynamic that will result in endless conflict and that we have to change lenses we have to switch paradigms we have to see things from a totally different perspective to get out of this and i know that not a lot of people are going to be able to hear this but for those that can this is what i'm suggesting because it has to start somewhere and i'm suggesting that built into that premise of good against evil and fighting the good fight is that our safety and security depend on it, that the only way that we can be safe and secure is to defeat the enemy. That's a premise that's baked into all of us, and it's caused endless conflict and war and oppression and victims throughout human history. And we're seeing it play out today, and that's why I'm trying to highlight the fact that the Trump followers are doing it just as well, just as we are and that it doesn't work, it doesn't amount to anything, it just creates more conflict. So the way out of this, in my mind, is to start to see what the Buddha described as enlightened self-interest. And we're in a paradigm now where we're seeing self-interest in a very small way, that we could say survival, and then, as you said, the next level up from that is morality, is fighting for what's right. But that's still looking at our self-interest in a very limited way. And the Buddha suggested that enlightened self-interest, we start to see that our self-interest is connected to the interest of everybody else, which is beautiful in my mind because it, it leads us into what I call true democracy. The idea of true democracy is that we are as strong as our society, we're as strong as our community, and that every member in the community, every member of society, every human being, every living being, has equal right and power. And when we see it that way, we start to align ourselves and identify ourselves as part of a group rather than as an individual. So rather than see ourselves as, as having to fend for our individual survival in a hostile world, we start to identify more as part of life, part of all of humanity, let's say and maybe part of, eventually, all of life, all of conscious life. And as we start to identify more as part of a much larger whole, we say life or consciousness or humanity, we begin to see that that's what makes us feel secure. That's what gives us 
strength and power, and it does. The more, the more that I see myself as part of a larger whole, the less fear I have. It's a direct antidote to the fear. And the more I see myself as an individual fighting for my own survival, the more the fear comes back. And that's an individual experiment that I invite everyone listening to this to play with on your own, is how do you actually feel strong and powerful? What actually gives you that? And I think in the end it's identifying with a much larger whole, all of humanity, and feeling connected and belonging, that that sense of belonging to something much bigger than yourself gives you real security and real safety, and it finally dissipates the fear. And that's what Buddha simply called enlightened self-interest. And to me, that's the way out of this. And so we begin wherever we need to begin, but every one of us that buys into the us against them, the good against evil, the victim against the oppressor. We're simply reverting back to that original paradigm, and we know where that's going to lead us. It's always going to lead to increased conflict, and no one's ever going to win that fight because everyone sees himself as right and the other side is wrong. So a way out of this is to introduce, through our own process, our own individual self-awareness, self-growth process, to step into this new paradigm of enlightened self-interest where we see our survival is dependent on everybody else's survival. And what's really, what's really cool to look at is that's the purpose, that's what global climate change is teaching us, that our individual survival isn't individual anymore, that our human vulnerability, our human physical survival on Earth does actually depend on everybody else. That's the message of global climate change. It's a global threat. And that's also, I think, baked into this message of the coronavirus, the, the situation we're all dealing with now, this unprecedented global pandemic of a, a virus that the human body hasn't seen before, that we're all having to deal with and has the potential to make us all sick and potentially kill us, that what that's doing is uniting us as a, as a species that all humans are now in the same boat. No matter how privileged you are, we're all susceptible to this little tiny virus that has the capacity to wreak havoc with our body. I think the message of the coronavirus and the message of global warming is that our survival does depend on the survival of the whole. And that's the transformation that we each need to make individually. And as we do that, it'll spread. And as it spreads, it will undo the, you know, the looking out for myself first individual mentality that's ultimately, I think, behind all the violence and the oppression that we want to end. But what about all the people who deny climate change and global warming and, and think that's just a hoax and think it's, it's a, a left-wing conspiracy or something? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, so as we progress, let's say, toward a more um, bigger view of ourselves. As that's happening, there's going to be massive resistance. There's going the ego. I could say it like this: the ego is going to fight back hard. And the ego's one of the ego's main tools is denial. Just pure denial doesn't exist. It's a hoax. It's a someone's playing a trick on you. Someone's trying to control you using the story of global climate change or, or the virus. There's people that think the virus is a hoax, and, and I've met people who think it's a deliberate 
illusion for some people to gain global control. And so that's what the ego is going to do. The ego is going to present this as somebody else trying to control you in order so that you never see that, that it's the pattern that's built into your programmed mind. And the best we can do is, you know, is not buy into it, of course, but to just see it as, oh, that's denial. That's what denial looks like. But also, that's what avoidance and denial look like. But also, we may have some listeners who actually do think that the coronavirus is, is essentially a hoax or created or being used as a way to control everybody at a global level. How would you address that? Because they're, they're experiencing or reacting to another kind of a fear again. Exactly. And that's a really good one to bring up. What I, the best way that I've found to address that so far is this idea that I've been pointing at from different directions. That So let me say it like this, that I think that it's the most natural thing for each one of us is to see ourselves as, as a victim of some outside oppressor. It's how our mind frames it. It's how we identify ourselves. It's how the ego sets it up. That's what I'm trying to say in all this. And one of the obvious forms that's going to take is, is what we might call conspiracy theories, is the idea that there's an all-powerful person or group of people who are using whatever means they can to control the rest of us. So people would say climate change is a, is a conspiracy theory to designed to maybe limit the capacity of industry. And other people would say the coronavirus is a, is a uh, hoax, is an is a, uh, illusion, is a deceit created by some powerful entity to try to gain control by maybe a universal vaccine that I've heard the theory that in the vaccine there's going to be a electronic chip that's implanted in everybody and that will enable whoever is behind it to control the rest of us. Those theories will proliferate and I see them proliferating more and more and more today and I believe that that's because the basis of it is true that you and I are being controlled. You and I are under the influence of a power that we can't see that is actually controlling everything that we do and we think. And we feel it. We can all feel this sense of something is controlling me. Something has power over me. Something is trying to use me for its own nefarious ends. And what we automatically do with that is project it outward. We think it's something outside of us. So the article I wrote begins with the idea that we think it's President Trump and his supporters that are going for global control. And you could make a really good argument that that's what they're doing. And my point is simply that we all feel that way. We all feel ourselves, see ourselves as the victim of some outside oppressor. And it's because we are being victimized. And there is an oppressor. And we are being controlled. The point is we're not seeing clearly what that is. And so in the confusion around that, we naturally project it outward and, and we make up stories that it's this, that it's that. We've done it, humans have done it for, since the beginning of human history, we've made up evil spirits, notions of dark forces that are out there controlling us, and every human society has made those stories. And the reason in my mind is because what's actually happening is your ego is controlling you. 
your ego is a programmed thought system that makes you believe that you are this individual separate being ego let's say you have a self an ego that you have to defend and protect for your own survival and that's the that's the conspiracy that's the oppressor it's your own belief in your own ego and the programming that comes along with that that has you fooled that has you under its spell it has you entranced and the spiritual path the path of meditation is to see that to see the roots of it and to pull it out by its roots buddha talked often about using meditation for freedom and what he was talking about was freedom from the control of your ego the program the conditioning that comes with a private the sense of a private individual self and it's that programming that's controlling every one of us so the idea that we're being controlled is absolutely right on where we're missing it is we imagine that it's anyone and everyone outside of us that's trying to control us when it's actually an agent that we've bought into inside our own mind it's it's a mental program that we're adhering to without even knowing that it's there we don't even see it it's invisible right and that that's what that whole metaphor of the matrix was all about was the yes. outer projection of our own inner programming the unconscious programming that was limiting us and limiting our ability to see what truly is exactly yeah yeah and and this is where you know in the past i think spirituality or spiritual pursuit has been seen as something sort of airy fairy that a few people do for some unknown reason but doesn't really affect anything and i'm really trying to turn that on its head and say no it's really powerful stuff when you get into self-awareness and when you practice meditation to the point where you can watch your own thoughts you can see the ego at work you can see this insidious programming that will paint you as a victim no matter what. And there's it's an always... infinite number of ways that we can paint ourselves as victims. So if, exactly. we, if we win one battle, a new one, it's like the heads of the hydra. You cut one off and, and mm -hmm. another one appears. Exactly. And it's really got us in its grip. And it's really stripping us of our personal power. We all feel kind of weak and helpless. And that explains why somebody like Trump can portray himself and probably feels like he's weak and helpless, which is a laugh. It's absurd when you look at it rationally. But when you see it from this point of view that, yes, he is helpless, he's under the influence of his own ego. And his ego has him, has him in its grip. And he's helpless. He's powerless under his own ego. And each one of us is as well until we free ourselves. And this is where these people that I admire so much, the great spiritual teachers, mine are, you know, two examples are Buddha and Jesus, have been role models for me because what they did was they freed themselves from their own ego and they thereby stepped out of the victim role and accessed this unbelievable power, this incredible potency that we each have within us. But we have to undo the ego. We have to turn away from it, let it go in order to access our true power. And as we do that, all the conspiracy theories, all the ideas of somebody outside there victimizing us will disappear. And we'll see it clearly for what it is. And we'll be able to act. We'll be able to move forward. And people that 
are still embedded in the conspiracy theories and the victim mentality, we'll see that they don't actually have any power. And that we'll or at least that they don't have as much power as we give them. Because exactly. there are there are people out there who are conspiring to gain more power and control and more of this or more of that. Things like that are happening on various levels in various ways, but they don't necessarily have anywhere near as much power as as we might expand it into in the exactly. way that the that, ego tends to yeah. create these narratives. Yes, I'm I'm really glad you're saying that. I don't mean to just diminish conspiracy theories. Yes, there are a lot of organizations and individuals whose main aim is to control everybody else, for sure, because what else would the ego want to do? Of course that's what people are doing because they're under the influence of their ego, and that's what the ego's game plan is. The game plan of the ego is to dominate the world. Every individual ego has as its ultimate aim to dominate the world, to be the only one left standing, to be the only ego. And the problem we have with Trump is that he's so, he's so upfront about it. He's so unconcealed about it. I think that's the thing that some people found refreshing in him and maybe why people voted for him, because he wasn't trying to hide it. He's not trying to conceal the fact that he's out to control the world. He wants to get all the money and all the control for himself. And while we might think that's horrible and ugly and, and unpresidential and, and immoral, I think it's essential that we all be honest with ourselves that we have that same urge deeply embedded in our individual ego. We're trying to control the world to make it completely safe for ourselves and, exactly. and also safe for our ego to keep on going the way it is. That's right. It's Need not necessarily see. about conquering everybody else. It's just making sure that we are ultimately safe from everything else. And, and yes. I guess ultimately that would mean to disempower any potential threats around us, which could, for some people, amount to everything around us. Yes, <laughs> them. and yeah. that's, that's what we need to understand is that, you know, it's easy for especially maybe educated liberal people to see the evil in somebody who's trying to dominate, someone who's going for, you know, imperialism or world dominance. We could say, no, that's wrong, that's wrong, you, that's wrong. But all it really is is it's a natural extension of the ego's plan for safety and security. If you follow the ego's plan, the only way you can feel secure under the ego's paradigm is when you dominate, and there's nothing else more powerful than you. It's helpful to be honest with ourselves about that and to realize that that's a recipe for self-defeat. That's a recipe for self-annihilation. We're going we're gonna to destroy each other and the planet in pursuit of that. It's not a realistic goal. And what I'm trying to suggest is it doesn't actually amount to safety. Another way to say it, based on the way you just broke it down, is the ego's safety is not the same as our own safety. And as long as we confuse those two, if we're trying to establish safety for our ego and security for our ego, it's going to get ugly. It's going to mean dominance. It's going to mean right versus wrong and endless conflict, and we're going to need to try to dominate to establish the security that our ego needs. And that explains so many different groups and organizations struggling for dominance, and it explains racism. It explains everything we're talking about. 
And if we follow that route, we're in for a hard go. It's not going to work. But if we see that our safety is not the same as the safety and security of our ego, that our safety and security lies in being part of a larger whole and connecting to the whole of life. That's where real safety and security lies, not in feeding our ego. And we have to individually make that distinction and see that difference. I call that a spiritual path, but you can call it whatever you want. It's just smart. It's how we as humans can intelligently navigate this really, really difficult crisis that we're up against is to see that our own safety has nothing to do with the security of our ego. And they're really at odds with each other. And once we let go of the ego and its way of trying to establish security, we realize that our security lies in in a very different place, which is unity with the whole, uniting with the whole, not separation. So for people who are not feeling in control of their lives or, or really sense that oppression from inside but don't really have a sense of it and realize that that they are projecting it out onto the world around us or else maybe they don't realize that but they but they experience it continually manifesting in their outer world but now are getting a sense that maybe it is coming from inside instead how you know what what can you offer for them for those people who want to work on that or or make some progress in that way from that place Yes, great question. Um, I think that the most important thing, and, and really the only important thing, is to question where you think the problem lies, to be willing to be curious about where the problem lies, instead of assuming, for example, that the problem is the Trump administration, or the problem is white supremacists, or the problem is those racist people. Instead of just resting on that assumption, I'm suggesting for listeners to dig a little deeper and question that assumption and ask, where is the real problem here? Where does it start? Where does, you know, where does this problem of victim and oppressor begin? And what happened for me a long time ago when I was a young man is I asked those questions and I kept asking those questions and I could feel and, and sense intuitively that my problem, my pain, my suffering, my discomfort and the conflicts in my life originated in my mind, that it was my thoughts that were out of control. My, I was addicted to thinking and my thinking mind was out of control and I could see that that's what was causing my anxiety. So I'm, I'm inviting people to look for the cause of anxiety inside your own mind, embedded in your thoughts and in the, the way your mind thinks. And if you could consider that, if you can just consider that there's some value in uprooting those thoughts, in in being aware of your thoughts and being willing to let them go, and your opinions or ideas, just being willing to suspend them, to let them go, and look a little deeper, that's the beginning of this process I'm talking about. And it's an experiment. I'm not suggesting that you believe it. I'm suggesting that you try it. Meditation is a great tool not the only way to do it. It's a tool that will enable you to pay attention to what's going on in your mind and will bring you a greater sense of calm awareness that we were talking about earlier, which then allows you to be more intelligent. It gives you access to your full awareness, your full conscious mind, and you can look to see some of the patterns that we've been talking about. 
the patterns of victim and oppressor that just go round and around and around. If you can start to see that's a pattern that's embedded in your own mind, the wisdom will dictate, oh, I need to uproot it there. I need to get rid of it. I need to let go of it in my own mind. And then I can, I can address it in the world. And they lead to each other. Being on a spiritual path doesn't mean you necessarily go into a cave in the mountains and stay there forever. It means that you uproot the problem in your own mind. You, you deal with it in the way that you can, where you have agency, which is you have agency in your own mind. You don't necessarily have agency to go out and stop the Trump administration. But if you can stop your own mind from proliferating the victim-oppressor pattern, then you can act in the world from a clean and clear place, and you can assist other people to do that. Mm -hmm. So for people who haven't really explored meditation or perhaps don't have much good experience with it, do you have any simple approaches available, like on your website? Yes, thank you for asking that. Um, So I teach meditation. And I do have resources, and my website is called Practical Presence. So you can find it practicalpresence.org, all one word. And on that website, you'll see a number of resources for meditation, including some talks that I've given, basic instructions in meditation. There's a video, several videos and audio talks. There's several books I've written that present meditation from different angles beyond perception, that's a book I published about 10 years ago, specifically about my experience with meditation and includes instructions on how to meditate. So that book is called Beyond Perception. And I've just recently published two smaller booklets this summer, one called Human Nature, one called The Tyranny of the Ego. All of these are available on Amazon.com. You can look under my name, Miles Shirts, or the book name, Beyond Perception, and They're resources that will help a person, help anyone listening to understand meditation, what it's for, and how to do it. When the virus isn't active, we offer retreats here at a beautiful small retreat center I've made up in Standard, Vermont, up in the Northeast Kingdom called Sky Meadow Retreat. And we offer usually several short or long weekend or five-day or seven-day insight meditation retreats. You can, you can learn meditation on your own. It's hard to do on your own. I recommend you find a group to meditate with and a, and a teacher to support you. And if you can, get yourself to a meditation retreat. It really helps get over the resistance that we have to doing it and helps deepen the practice. I hope next year in 2021 to be able to offer those retreats again here at Sky Meadow. For this year, it's pretty clear we're not going to be able to do that. So, Well... This has been another fascinating and enlightening conversation. Miles Schertz, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Tonio. And be well. Be well yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Miles Schertz. He's a teacher, meditation teacher, counselor, mediator, and the author of Beyond Perception, Conscious Communication, Conscious Communication for Couples, And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.
It's not out there. I looked in newspapers. I looked in magazines. But it's not out there. I looked at the ads. I looked at commercials. They said, digest, use this. This is where it's at. But it's not out there. I looked for someone who would fill this emptiness. But so many attempts, so many failures. It's not out there. I went to parties. I drank. I smoked. I chatted. I looked. But it's not out there. I read books by people who had answers, but I forgot them all. The only thing I do remember is it's, it's not, not out there. there. I blame this person. I blame that person. I blame everyone, but it's not out there. I love to have a... I ask for guidance. I pray. I went to church, but it's not out there. I've done this over and over. I keep coming back. I look. I find it's not out there. Why? Why do I keep looking out there? I guess maybe it doesn't matter. Why? I guess maybe one day I'll finally, eventually, one day realize it's not out there. Is it in here?
Responsible to your brother people. The power of love makes you responsible to 